Let's pray together. Father, because we believe that you speak to us through your word, I pray that you prepare us to hear. I, prepare, I pray you prepare us for a genuine encounter with you today, Father. We, we want to hear your voice. We want to know what you're saying to us. Father, we want direction and guidance. We, we want hope. We, we want peace. Lord, though we may not want it, Lord, some of us need correction, discipline even. Some of us need clarity. We need specific understanding. Father, I pray that we would be prepared to hear from you. And believing that the enemy will do all that he can to distract us from hearing, discourage us from listening, um, to take what we hear and snatch it away before it takes root in us, before we believe it and begin to act on it. Father, I pray that you would guard and protect this sacred time that we spend in your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would, in fact, meet you here today at the point of your revelation to us, and that as we respond to what you have said, what you are saying, what you want, what you are doing, what you've promised, Father, that real worship would ensue. That would be our response to you, to worship you obediently, to trust you faithfully, to, to wait on the return of Christ expectantly and, and hopefully. And Father, to choose to live in a way that declares to all that you are king, that you are sovereign over us, that we, we live for your pleasure. We want to make much of you, glorify you, and we want to know the good and enjoy the good of being faithful to you. So, Father, make this moment sacred and precious. Protect it, Father. Empower, enable it. Lord, that me, we might gain from your table what you desire to feed us with today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Titus chapter 2 today. And as we go through the book of Titus, this brief but very meaty letter, I've centered our thoughts around, I hope, for you, for me, the idea of what's a normal Christian life. And again, just for clarity's sake, I want you to understand what I'm saying by that. I don't mean just the typical Christian life. And by using the word normal, I certainly don't mean the average Christian life. I mean, what did God intend for us? What did he save us for and to? And what is biblically normal for us? And of course, implicit in that is as we think through normal Christianity in light of Scripture, it begs the question for each of us personally, is, is my life normal? Is this a normal Christian experience? Or am I, am I living a reduced version, a, a deviant somehow, a deviated version, a, a less than what God intended? What's normal? What did God intend for us? So I entitled this, The Normal Christian Life is a Gospel Life. And if you're a note taker and you like to write on the margins and things, maybe you'll put above that or one of those little arrows between gospel and life, a gospel-saturated life. I remember years ago, it was when I first came to Calvary, and I don't remember exactly what I was preaching then. I think we were going through the Gospel of John at the time. And I got some feedback. I would call it more in the pushback category, the less than positive feedback. And a couple of people have said, you keep preaching to us like we're all lost. You keep preaching to us like we're all lost. And I had to think through that. And I thought, well, if my first challenge as, as a preacher is the sense of spiritual responsibility for those that God has put under my care, that they hear the gospel, that they know it, and they respond to it. I mean, my, my greatest aim, and I don't say this with any pride or false spirituality or anything, my greatest aim in preaching is not that I would find the approval of all of you, or that you'd all be well pleased with what I say, but my greatest aim would be that either should the Lord return or we all die one day, that as many of us as possible make it across 
that river into the place that God has promised in glory. I, I want you to know the gospel, respond to the gospel, and finish well in the gospel. So maybe I do preach that way. But another thing came to my mind afterwards. By continuing to tell you the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, the promises that are in Scripture, and how we're supposed to live as a result, that's necessary for all of us to hear over and over and over and over again. Because we don't move away from that first love, that great love. The gospel is not something that we hear and respond to once upon a time, and then we move on to other things, more interesting things. According to Titus chapter 2, it's the gospel that shapes us in every part of our life. It's what trains us, develops us, molds us into Christ-likeness. It's what prepares us for whatever's coming our way next. It's what enables us to stand firm, to persevere. It's what readies us to be with God one day. And so that's the theme we pick up in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you. Let me give you the context of what is being said here, because again, it's important that we see this as one continuous letter, um, not just bullet points, different themes and ideas, but one continuous letter to a people that God is making to be more and more like himself. So look at the context Moving back just a couple of verses to verse 9. That in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This message to God's people is this. The way that you live, the way that you live in this world, I mean the real life stuff that you do, how you treat your family, and how do you talk to your spouse, and how you conduct your business, and what sort of neighbor you are, the things you're interested in and the things you're not interested in. I mean, everything about you, if you're a Christian, is saying something about God. And it's saying something about God, particularly in you and in your life. And you're either adorning the gospel with the evidence, the beautiful evidences of the power of God to change a person, to fill that person with the power of the Holy Spirit that creates a fruit and evidence in them, that they're becoming more and more like Christ. You can adorn it with something that looks supernatural, that looks beautiful, that looks more and more like Christ, or you can diminish it. And those are really the only two options, to adorn it with, with beauty and power or to diminish it with questions and, and doubt. It would cause people to wonder, is this real? Is this legitimate? Is there anything to this? Is there anything different about you than me? I, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in any of that stuff. Maybe I'm agnostic. Maybe I think I'm an atheist. And I don't see anything about you that's different than me. You want what I want. You do what I do. You say what I say. Think what I think. You, you go after the things I'm after. You value things I value. Where's the uniqueness here? The aim for us as Christians, and consider the context. Here's this Isle of Crete. Cretans live there, known for their immorality, their godliness, godlessness, known for all manner of living that doesn't look anything at all like Christian. And now there's this invasion here into this dark kingdom of the kingdom of God in Christ. And the people are coming to Jesus and their lives all look different. He says, adorn the gospel. Show what the gospel does. Show how the gospel is beautiful and makes your life attractive. 
Show the power of God at work in you so that in everything we may adorn the gospel. And he says, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is a grace that saves. When he talks about the appearance of Christ, he's talking about the appearance of grace. What is God's grace? God's grace is the power at work in us that both roots out and removes sin and its power over us and also prepares us, enables us, empowers us to be like Christ. It's the defining work of our salvation, God's grace in us. He gives to us freely, but he definitely gives to us powerfully. It's the appearance of grace. This is very similar to what we saw or what we will see in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. He says, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God's grace has been God's plan all along. Before you and I ever existed, God determined to pour out his grace on his people. God determined to save a people. God determined to powerfully intercede in the lives of a people, revealing himself to them, changing their hearts, drawing them to him, saving them, keeping them, preserving them, and one day enjoying them for all eternity. And now we see this grace appearing, this plan and purpose of God for all generations appearing in Christ. When Christ appeared, grace was manifested. You can see it. You can touch it. You can hear it. It's all in the person of Christ. Now there's a little bit of a challenging phrase here, which I want to spend just a moment in, not too long of a detour, but I think it's important for us to consider just for a moment, what did What did Paul mean when he wrote to Titus this? He says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's a tricky phrase right there. What did did Paul mean? What did the Holy Spirit intend when he told Paul, This is for all people? And this has certainly been a subject of debate for for centuries, really since the time of, of its writing. What is all people here? Does this verse teach that the saving grace of God has been manifested to each and every member of the human race, all without exception? Or does this mean that it has been manifested to all classes of mankind, without distinction, without distinction of their age, their their sex, their nationality, their social position, their ethnicity, etc.? What does this passage mean? In his book, Grace Preparing for Glory, let me read you a statement from A.W. Pink. He said, the grace of God, his loving kindness, his goodwill, his free favor, has appeared to all men, quote unquote. That expression is used in scripture in two different senses. Sometimes to all men is used to mean without exception, as in all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other passages, it signifies all without distinction, as it does here, to the bondsman or slave, as well as the free, to the servant as the master, to the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, to all kinds and conditions of men. And so when Paul is writing to Titus, it's in line with the exact same pastoral statements he was making when he wrote to Timothy. When he wrote to God desires the salvation of all, he's talking about all types, all people, all kinds. The term all men in this context doesn't mean each and every single individual. We're not universalists, so we know it can't mean that everyone will be saved. The salvation appears to all people. We know then that some will not be saved. Some will refuse, some will not believe. 
We know from the human side of the equation, the responsibility is clearly ours. If a person hears the gospel and refuses to believe it, the responsibility of their lostness is not on God. It's not because they were not elected or chosen. That's not theirs to determine or even consider. If you're hearing the gospel today, and I'm going to explain in just a moment if it's new to you, and I don't want to just use terms without being explicit about them. If you hear it and don't believe it, then you're lost because of your unbelief. What about those who never hear it? Are they responsible only because they've rejected? What if they've never heard enabled and been enabled to reject? Well, the Bible teaches it's sin that condemns us. It's not simply our inability to hear the gospel. It's that we have sinned and we refuse the revelation that God has given us. So then the question is, who is saved? What salvation are we talking about here? Well, the Bible teaches that the grace of God is special. It's distinguishing. It's eternal from time past. It's designed for those, according to Ephesians chapter 4, 1 verse 4, that God himself has chosen before the foundation of the earth. This was God's intent and purpose. So we think about this salvation for all people. We know that this is not a universal salvation. It's particular to some. We know it's not an indefinite salvation, but it definitely saves some. And we know that it's not a hypothetical salvation. I hope people will believe this, but it's an actual salvation that God will, in fact, save those he intends to save. When we read through the Gospel of John, we see this picture unfolding of Jesus coming on a particular mission, a specific mission, to redeem the people that God has given him as his bride. And he does, and he draws them to him, and they believe. The gospel is presented to them, and the Holy Spirit moves among them in John chapter 3. And as the Holy Spirit moves, people respond by faith to him. When Jesus completes his work, he's able to say it's finished. And when he prays for us in John chapter 17, he's praying for those that he knows will be his. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And this is the essence of the gospel. God's saving grace in Christ either brings salvation to everyone for whom it's intended, or it doesn't. It either saves provisionally, it makes possible salvation, or it saves actually. It either saves hypothetically or it saves certainly. But both can't be true. If the salvation that we're talking about in Titus chapter 2 is only a theoretical salvation, a hypothetical salvation, or a provisional salvation, then we know from other scriptures that no one will be saved. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 states, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If it's up to us, then none will be saved. But if it is the latter that God actually saves, that he certainly saves, that he definitely saves those whom are his, then we know that some of mankind will be saved. And they'll represent all of mankind without distinction of age or sex or social standing. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. We discussed this a little bit in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, our series there. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So we know there's a uniqueness to the salvation of those who believe. It's not everyone that will be saved. It's not everyone who will have their sins forgiven and have eternal life granted to them, but those who believe will. So in what sense does God provide or give a salvation to all people? What sort of grace is affected for all people? R.L. Dabney wrote this. He said, Christ's sacrifice has certainly purchased 
for the whole human race, a merciful postponement of the doom incurred by our sins, including all the temporal blessings of our earthly life, all the gospel restraints on human depravity, and the sincere offer of heaven to everyone who believes. But for Christ, man's doom would have been followed instantly after his sin, as that of the fallen angels did. How does he save everyone? By grace and mercy, affording them the opportunity to respond to the truth given to them. Otherwise, judgment would have been immediate. So he says this gospel, again, it's consistent with what he's written to Timothy. He's not speaking salvation to all everywhere simply because Jesus came. We're all innately good. All ultimately will be with God in heaven. No. It's a defined people that God has saved. And it's not distinctive of age, sex, type. Not just the Jews, but now the Gentiles. Not just the free men, but the slave. Not just the men, but the women. Not just the older, but the younger. All alike. He says, what does this salvation do? I'm going to drill down into this just for a moment. For those who are saved, again, listen to what he says for just a moment. He says, this grace appearing to us in Christ, and again, not grace that makes salvation possible, but the grace that saves us. So a person that's genuinely transformed by the gospel, not just this transaction, God took my sin, he gave us his righteousness, but this grace that's transformational, the power of God at work in me. What does it do? What's the evidence of it? What should it look like? And I subtitled this section in your note, notes, Grace That Teaches. But upon closer examination, what I'd like for you to do is just strike that word. I'll just put a line through it. And beside it, I want you to write this word instead. Grace that trains. Because there's a difference in teaching and in training. There's a difference in teaching and in training. Many of us have been taught things that we've never been trained to do. Training requires action and activity. It requires supervision and evaluation. It, it, it requires coaching and feedback. Training is more than just information given. And the Bible teaches us here that grace trains us. The work of God in us that saves us is actually doing more than just taking away our sin it's training us. Listen to what he said. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How does the gospel of grace train us? You think about how you're being trained right now. Some of it is conscious training. Some of you for your job or for school are receiving a particular sort of training. Some of it's didactic and you're hearing, you're, you're being spoken to, you're reading the material, you're trying to assimilate it. Some of it's hands-on and practical and now you're having to do those things. Do you know what training looks like in your, own, in your own sphere, your own world? But think of the ways that you're being subconsciously trained. When you sit there on your phone and you just scroll, scroll. And I do that sometimes, too. I watch these little videos, and I learn how to make a pie, and I learn how to make an air conditioner out of just a bucket. And, uh, you know, I learn how a, a boxer engine operates, which is different than, you know, I'm learning all these things. They're all fascinating to me, and my mind's going everywhere, and I'm training myself all the while to have a low attention span, to not be able to focus on anything for very long, to find sitting and listening to a sermon well-nigh impossible, much less reading a deep or meaningful book that requires me to think deeply about. I'm training myself to be superficial. Or you think about internet exchanges, social media exchanges. I'm training myself all the time to dehumanize people, 
to speak to them in a way that I would never speak to them face to face, to, to say things that I would never say in real conversation, to act in a way that I would never act in real life. I'm training myself to disassociate. Or you think about the, the great American tragedy of pornography, this training people to see sex in a way that's absolutely contrary, not only to God's design for you, but to a healthy marriage, to a healthy sense of self, to a healthy view of other people, opposite sex or otherwise. Why do we have so much sexual deviancy in our age today? Why do we see this huge arcing growth of transgenderism and bisexuality, homosexuality, etc.? Because we have trained up a generation via pornography. We've normalized. We've trained ourselves to this. You think about what sitting in front of the television for hours on end is training you to do and training you to think. You think of the conversations that you have. You think of the things that you do every day. You're being trained all the time into something that feels normal to you, natural to you. This is just what we do because you've been trained into it. The Bible is saying that you and I as Christians ought to be being trained by the gospel of grace. How is the gospel training me? And see, here's our struggle. Far too many of us as Christians, particularly of our brand and stripe, have separated conversion from discipleship. So in essence, though we may never speak it this way, this is what we're subconsciously thinking. I accepted Christ as my Savior. I prayed that prayer. I'm saved. I'm good. I'm safe. Everything else now is functionally optional. Because no matter what else happens, you can discuss this in any way you'd like, but in the bottom line, the final deal is, I'm going to go to heaven, so I'm good. We don't understand that the real gospel that we see in Scripture does more than save us. It transforms us. It trains us. Grace trains us to say no to worldly, ungodly living. It's training us. My reading of Scripture, my listening to sermons, my understanding why Jesus came and what Jesus said and what the gospel is supposed to do in me to make me a new creation, the more I understand it, the more I see it's training me to not be what I used to be. We struggle so much, I think, trying to fight sin at the point of temptation. You know, how do I stop doing this? And we run in these cycles of guilt, and then we seek forgiveness, and then we face temptation again, and we fall into the same sin again, then we feel guilty, and we run these cycles over and over and over and over again. And we never deal with the ultimate issue at the very point of our desires. And here's the problem. We've trained ourselves to feed our desires. We've trained ourselves to sin. And then we wonder why we fail at resisting sin. We're a victim of our own training, our own experience. Because this world has taught us to do what feels good to you. That your happiness is the greatest and highest aim. And if it brings you pleasure, and if it doesn't hurt anybody, which is one of the great myths of sin, my sin won't hurt anybody, as long as it does these things, then it's good. And so we train ourselves to be pleasure seekers. We train ourselves to fuel on recreation and entertainment. As we train ourselves to do these things, we wonder why we're not seeing godliness and Christ-likeness in us. You want to live a Christ-like life? Get off the train, get off the crazy train and the cycle of sin and confession, repentance and guilt and sin, etc. And train yourself for godliness. The more I understand his scriptures, the more I take these words and put them in my heart, the more I memorize them and speak them to myself. This is what we mean when we say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Keep reminding yourself, train yourself. What is normal? What's normal is not to live like this world lives, but to live like Christ designed you to live. 
That's normal Christian life. Grace trains you to say no to worldly, ungodly living. He says it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And on the positive side, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present day. Self-controlled? That doesn't mean lust-controlled, desire-controlled. doesn't mean impetuous or, or foolish or short-sighted. It means I'm living with an aim in mind that's to honor Christ. Grace trains us to say yes to what we talked about last week. Sensible Christian living. This is the work of God is training us. How is grace training you right now? Or maybe a better question is, what is training you right now? What is training you right now? What's training your attitude? The news or the scriptures? What's training your values right now? The, the culture or the Spirit of God? What's training your outlook, your demeanor, your conversations? What's training you in your marriage and in your parenting? What's training you in your relationships with other people? Where are you receiving that training from? Because God's grace in us is our coach for life. This is what God intends for us. It trains us to say no to certain things. It trains us to say yes to other things, to embrace them. And it trains us to do this, to wait patiently, expectantly, and joyfully for Christ's return. To wait patiently for it. Now you may be thinking, what choice do I have but to wait? But there's an active waiting here. You think about things that you've been promised. Think about things that you've been promised. Remember when I was in high school, and like, like many of you, any of you who hit 16, you're probably thinking things like, you know, freedom and independence, all personified in four wheels. I can't think of anything I wanted more at 16 years old than a car. And I can remember being promised that if I would just wait, if you'll just wait a little bit, then you can have this. And this is the car that you can have. And it wasn't a great car. It was a used car. I don't want you to have any grandiose ideas here. But, you know, if you just wait, you can have this. But if you can't wait patiently, expectantly, joyfully, if you just have to push it and press it, then you'll choose something else, something lesser than. Something else, something lesser than. And for me, I ended up choosing the something else, something lesser than, the something immediate. Rather than waiting, hopefully, for something that could be mine and just wait and, and experience the joy of having that that was promised that you look forward to, I said, no, nah, I'll take this. So the first car I drove was a 76 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme four-door beige. It was a sweet ride. First thing I did to it, like any self-respecting 16-year-old, was replace the radio. But I did that myself without any skills and without young people, without the, value, without the input of YouTube. We didn't have that, okay? So we had figured this out on your own tube, you and your buddies. I had idiot tube. And a couple of screwdrivers and a wrench or two. And so we didn't realize as we were taking the stereo out of my mom's old car that we were also taking the dash apart. <laughs> and so we finally got the stereo in, and we did. And we didn't know anything about ohms and impedance, impedance or whatever the word is. We didn't get the speakers matched right to the stereo, so it sounded horrible. But much worse than that was one of those days riding home from school, we hit a bump and the whole dash came out on our laps. Because <laughs> we, we didn't put it all back together right. Now, if I just waited, but I think about this, how does this relate to us waiting for Christ? If we're not centered on the certainty, Christ is going to return. What you see in the news is not the final story. We're, ours is the victory. We, we do win this thing. That's one of the things that I, I dislike most about this, 
this pervasive sort of left-behind theology that's taken hold with so many, is that it doesn't really matter ultimately because we're just going to be snatched out of here. So wave the white flag, give it up. No, we fight, we fight, we fight. And one day we will win this thing. We wait expectantly. But if I'm not waiting expectantly, hopefully, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to begin to be discouraged about what I see. And doubt's going to begin to creep in. And I'm going to be tempted to choose something lesser than faithfulness to the king, who for sure is coming back. And it's going to show up in the way that I live, where I'm just not going to care anymore what I do. All of it becomes this sort of vagary and this uncertainty. And I begin to live as if it's not true or if it's not real. And my life doesn't give evidence to fidelity to a real and reigning and returning king. But instead it reverts back to the rule of me and my own lusts and desires. And that's reality. Grace trains us to wait patiently, expectantly, hopefully, and live in a certain way. Because listen to what it says. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. You see, our salvation, this grace that appeared, we have this first great appearance of grace in the incarnation of Christ. And the incarnation of Christ is our ground of hope in the return of Christ. That he came is our certainty that he will come again. This is a scriptural hope from beginning to end that Jesus, who came once, will come again. And this salvation that he brought to us at his appearing is far more than forgiveness. There's much more than forgiveness in view here. When it says, what does this grace do? It liberates us from the power of sin over us. Liberates us. I'm afraid far too many presentations of the good news of Christ don't include this critical element. For a person to come to Christ, they're coming for freedom, to be set free from the bonds of, of sin, the chains around them that, are, that have dictated their life and is destroying their life. This passage makes it clear that Jesus liberates us from that. When he died on the cross for us, it wasn't simply so that we could be forgiven of all those sins, but that we would no longer be captive to all those sins anymore. He's the liberating king who takes us from this captivity of darkness and death and makes us part of his kingdom and sets us free to do that which pleases him. Jesus in his salvation cleanses us from the world's defiling effect on us. This is the purpose of this passage. He gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness, to buy us back from lawlessness, to redeem us and to purify us. That's to cleanse us. Do you see the both and there? Not simply to redeem us from the consequence of lawlessness, but from lawlessness itself. Lawlessness captivated me to live apart from God and his authority. But God sets me free from that. That's the essence of redeeming. And then he purifies for himself a people. This world defiles us. I think we miss that sometimes. This is a whole other thought, a whole other series. I started writing down. Sometimes I'm just writing things in my notebook or journal of things I want to preach. And one of the great ills of modern Christianity, I'm 100% sure of, is this. We don't really care about sin anymore. We just don't care about sin. And subconsciously, the less sin matters to us, then the less worth grace has to us. I mean, those two things are in absolute relationship with one another. And I'm afraid, again, one of the, one of the most destructive myths that affects 
Christians today is that sin doesn't matter to God if you're a Christian. We don't see that sin defiles, defiles, defiles. I saw a horrific description of what sin is in a recent sermon I watched a blurb about from North Point Church and Andy Stanley that is not at all the biblical picture of sin. Sin is not just about what hurts you or other people. Sin is about what, for a Christian, defiles you and diminishes the image of God in you. It's what con- what's contrary to the commands of God for you. It's what devalues the worth of God to you. It's what denies the authority of God over you. That's what sin does. And in this passage, he's saying, listen, your life is to adorn the gospel, to show the beauty and the power of the gospel in your life. And this world will do everything it can to defile that, to dirty that, to diminish that. Sin and its power over us was destroyed by Christ at the cross. If we grant sin power over us again, we have done that voluntarily. What could be more horrendous than voluntary bondage? And not only does Jesus cleanse us from the world's defiling effect on us, this is what the gospel is supposed to be training us to do, to live pure lives. But Jesus also deploys us as eager agents of good. He gave himself for us. Why did Jesus die for us? What did that accomplish? To redeem us from lawlessness so we could be set free from sin, to make for himself a people that reflect him, a pure people, a people that he possesses, and a people who do a certain thing, they're zealous for good works. So now you want a comprehensive picture of salvation? You want a comprehensive picture of the evidence we should look for in someone's life to determine whether or not they're truly believers? The fruit that should be evident to other believers, it should look like this. Are they increasingly free of the power of sin? Are they showing a freedom over the power of sin and a freedom to live righteously? Two, are they showing a distinction from the world's defilement? Are they looking more and more like Jesus in this world? And three, are they zealous to do good, to be about the good, to be a positive force for good in this world? This is what God has saved us for. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. This is normal Christianity. That's gospel-centered Christianity. And at the end of this statement of normal Christianity, this is just wide-arcing, comprehensive statement in just a few verses, Paul then instructs Titus specifically to do this, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Okay, so if this is normal Christianity... If this is what the good news of God in Christ does, this is what grace does. If you're an elder like Titus, what should you be doing? Declaring, exhorting, rebuking. What does that mean for you if you're not an elder, if you're on the receiving end of those things? What should you expect? What should you expect from the words that are preached to you? What should you expect from the sermons that you hear? What should you expect from the gathered assembly of your church family? You should expect to be taught. You should expect over and over again to be taught these components of and implications of, the content of, the rationale for, the benefits of, the implications of the gospel so that we understand it, so that we cherish it, so that we live it, so that we share it. So if you feel like you're being taught the same things over and over, you're you're talking to us like we're, we're not saved yet. No, I'm talking to you as those who are saved so that you would cherish this great salvation. So you would understand all the implications of it, the depth of it, 
so that you want to live this out and so that you would be able and have a desire to talk to other people about it. You should expect to be taught. You should also expect to be encouraged. That's the idea of being exhorted. You should expect to be encouraged every week as you come in, sort of recalibrated if you were, because so much stuff has been going on. You're reading all this stuff that can be discouraging and distracting, and the world is just such a messed up place today. So as Christians, we need to come together and encourage each other to press on faithfully. Let's press on faithfully. Let's do the right thing. Let's stand for the truth. Let's say what ought to be said. Let's do what ought to be done. Let's lock lock arms and do this together. You ought to be encouraged, motivated, sent out and say, let's do this. Let's be faithful to Jesus. He's worth it. And you should expect to periodically be rebuked. Why? Well, I'm forgiven already, right? My debt is paid. My home is in heaven. What rebuking is there for me? It's the rebuking of being tainted by this world. It's the rebuke that comes for someone who's doubting or falling away. It's the rebuke given to someone whose life no longer adorns the gospel, but instead diminishes the gospel. You rebuke so that when you fail, and who among us doesn't periodically fail, we can be quickly restored and return to Christ faithfully. So we can walk again in step with Him. See, every normal Christian, biblically normal Christian, should expect to receive rebuke and to receive it as a work of God's grace in my life. Because God wants better for me. Because God desires more of me, demands more of me. Because God wants to display more of Himself through me. So sometimes it's teaching. Sometimes it's encouragement and motivation. And sometimes it's rebuke. And why? It's all centered on this. One of my favorite phrases, perhaps my favorite phrase in the whole letter of Paul to Titus. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now maybe for some of us in this room that seems like a a true statement and simultaneously a disconnected statement. Like I know it's true, but I don't see any connection with that in my everyday life. I mean, I believe Jesus is coming back, just like I believe Jesus was born, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. But it it has little bearing on my every day. Let me challenge you on that, that it ought to have great bearing on your every day to know that Christ is going to return. Jesus gave parables about this, about readiness and watchfulness, about, about purity, about action, about doing the things we ought to be doing living for the return and the reward, of being prepared at all times. He says, waiting for our blessed hope. Again, this active waiting, this faithful waiting, this conscious waiting. As I said before, the ground of our assurance in Christ's return was that He came once. How do we know He's coming again? Because He came, the incarnation. Those are tied together. He who came will come again. And that was a great word of encouragement that the early church received. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the angel told those watching, just as you saw, you'll see him again. He'll return. He who appeared before, though he was veiled. Remember, that's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his second letter to the Corinthians. He said Christ was veiled to many. They see that there's a history here that's hard to deny. There's a person there, hard to deny that he was real. 
but the worth of that person, the identity of that person, the very son of God, God in the flesh is veiled to them so that they don't see and they don't believe. But one day Jesus returns unveiled and all eyes will see him. Every knee will bow before him. Unequivocally, undeniably, inarguably, Jesus, King Jesus returns. And knowing this, having this, this this future grace, the grace that will one day deliver us from the sins of this world, the pains of this life, that will restore us to God's original design and the new heavens and the new earth where we enjoy Him forever. Knowing this future grace is ours, this blessed hope, not I wish for, but this confident assurance of truth based on the promise of God, a blessed hope. Knowing this, this is our great motivation for godliness right now. Knowing that Christ's return is certain, that's what motivates us to live in a certain way right now. Normal Christian life, normal Christian living, Normal Christianity is living in light of the return of Christ. Since his return is sure, how should you be living right now? That's your question. How should you be living right now? The gospel, the good news of Christ, our response to it, belief, grants us God's gift to us, salvation. We spend a lot of time sometimes speculating on theological finer points. But I want to say to you, if you're not a believer yet, here's what you need to hear. Every single one of us have sinned, and I think that's undeniable. By that sin, we've fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of that which meets His demands. We've fallen short of that standard which is acceptable to him. Without holiness, the Bible says, no one will see the Lord. That lack of holiness, that anti-holiness that we have is called sin. It's our thoughts against God. It's our words against God. It's our actions and attitudes against God. Anything that doesn't cherish him above all, love him completely with our whole heart, soul, and mind, anything that doesn't bow completely to his authority is sin. And the wages of sin is death. Now, the common grace that we enjoy right now is that we have not died immediately. That we didn't face the instant judgment of death that came to the angels when they rebelled against God, who were kicked out of his presence and and kicked out of heaven and condemned to an eternal lake of fire one day in the future. Listen, God's will for you is this, that you would hear the good news that though you have sinned against the Almighty and deserve death, God sent his own son in your place to die in your stead to take the consequences for your sin, to die for you, to take that punishment and to be an atoning sacrifice for your sins, a sacrifice that the Father would accept because Jesus was perfect and sinless. And he didn't die as a victim of the culture or the times or the religious powers that be. He died as an intentional will and work of God. It was the Father's will to crush him for our sake. Because like you heard before in the scriptures read in Isaiah 53, we all have sinned. We all have strayed. But God in his love and mercy laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he took our sin. But not just so we could continue to live a life that denies him. Not simply so we could continue in our sin that was destroying us and put him on that cross. But so that we could be forgiven and free and live new lives. And how how do you do this? How do you have this? It's by grace. 
free gift of God to put His power in your life, to forgive your sin, to set you free, the Holy Spirit in you, to make you, shape you into the image of Christ, to prepare you for eternity. You'll never earn it. You'll never accomplish it. But by faith, you can receive it. And that's good news for you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, and you can receive it. Christian, you need to hear that good news all the time, too, because it affects how you live. Are you adorning this gospel now? Are you making it more evident to people around you? Are you showing people the power of this gospel in your life? Are you showing them the beauty of this life that follows Christ? Are you adorning it or diminishing it? And how you're adorning or diminishing it probably has everything to do with how you're training yourself. Because the gospel of grace trains us to live this way. But many of us have given the training of our lives over to other things. And so consciously or subconsciously, we're being shaped all the time. And that's why the Bible says don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed to the image of Christ. Be trained by this and live expectantly for this hope. This reality, this is our sure and certain hope. This is our promise. And again, I love this phrase, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, you live in a way that acknowledges that. If you're not a believer yet, then I want to tell you, this will be real. And it doesn't matter what your faith is or religion is or what you think about things. You will see this truth and you will know that all these things you have heard were true. But it'll be too late. He does not come again as a servant to submit himself to our cruelties, our abuses, our rejection, and death on a cross. He comes as a conquering king to deliver those who are his and to judge and crush and destroy all of his enemies. I want you to be on the winning side of Christ. I want you to know him and, and submit to him, follow him and love him, wait for him knowing that one day we will enjoy Him. Will you close your eyes with me as we pray today? Father, I thank You for this blessed hope we have. The blessed hope that in a world that seems so despairing, sometimes just, just disgusting, so confusing and disconcerting, Father, we have a sure and certain hope in Christ. Lord, make us wise in how we ought to live. Father, I pray that we would be trained by Your Word, trained by the Gospel trained by grace, the power of you in us. Train us, Father, increasingly to say no to, to godlessness, to say no to ourselves, to say, say no to worldliness, say no to lust within us, say no to temptation and sinful desires. Father, train us more and more, I pray, to say yes to that which is good and righteous and holy. Father, may our lives be active in, in faith, doing good. May we be zealous to do good. May we be emissaries of Christ, agents of your purpose, Father, good ambassadors, speaking good, doing good, standing for good. Lord, all the while we wait on a sure and certain hope, our blessed hope, Father, may that be true of us. And may we encourage and help one another to do the same. May we be willing to receive correction. May we respond well to encouragement. May we desire to be taught, to understand, to cherish, to love, to to speak, to do these things. Father, for anyone listening, anyone in this room who's not a believer yet, Father, I pray that they would have a sense now given to them by you that there is a real hope here. The tragedy of this world is not all that there is. To live 
and experience the pains of this life and the losses of this life, the tragedies of this life, and then simply to die. How hopeless and despairing is that? But to know that you are true and real and that you call us to a new life, life to the full. You call us to abandon the old and all the sins of the old and to embrace you and to live under your rule, your good rule, your benevolent rule, to be free of sin and all that destroys us and instead to embrace life and all that's good, to know you and love you and be faithful to you as we long to see you face to face, just as those saw that glorious appearing some 2,000 years ago. Lord, we long, we wait, we endure, we persevere, we stay faithful because of this blessed hope, the appearance of our great Savior. So Lord, I pray that you would call some from unbelief to belief today, that they would ask you to forgive their sins, they would trust the work of Jesus on the cross for them, that he died for their sins, that he rose for their justification, they returned where he sits at your side, where he rules from the throne, and he's ever interceding for us, and he will return as the conquering king of all, destroying all enemies, exonerating, exalting his church, his bride. Father, I pray that some would choose that today instead of the death that they're in. And Lord, they would find how good the gospel is. Meanwhile, Father, motivate every believer in this room to live in a way that adorns the gospel with beauty and power to display you well, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a statement of our faith in Christ, the gospel that saves us. I'm going to invite um, our deacons that are sharing the elements of the Lord's Supper table to begin to distribute those among us this morning. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've expressed that belief, that faith in Christ through baptism, and you're part of that family, we invite you to receive this bread as a reminder of the real person and body of Christ, the substitutionary work of Christ who came in our stead. He came to save sinners. He did that with his body. Likewise, take one of those cups as a reminder of the means of the atonement. How are our sins paid for? How are we made right with God? God is holy and just. Sin must be punished or God is not good. He's not holy. He's not fair. But God who is both just and holy and merciful and loving crushed His own Son. And by the shedding of the blood of His own Son, a pure and perfect sacrifice, He redeems, He forgives all those who are His, all those who by faith have put their faith and trust, their belief in Him, it's by His blood that our sins are atoned for, a sacrifice that God received and demonstrated His reception of by raising Him from the grave. This grace is not something that we believe in once and then we leave it behind. This gospel is something that we trust in every day. We remind ourselves of every day. Live in light of this, who you are in Christ, this new creation, whose you are. God has made you his own special possession, purifying you in this world, preparing you for the next. Let this be that reminder to you today as we worship him together. As we take this bread together, let's pray and give God thanks.
Father, we thank you that our salvation is not merely emotional, it's not psychological, it's not theoretical, it's real, it's physical. That Jesus, our Savior, condescended to us. He willingly abandoned the glory, the honor, the privilege of heaven. And he submitted to your will to save us. He became the servant to save us. He faced every temptation and for our sake overcame. Though he was tempted as we are in all respects, he was sinless. And willingly, intentionally, voluntarily submitted himself to your will as a great agent of your mercy and grace allowing himself to be crucified for our sins. Demonstrating the perfection of his sacrifice. Validating his claim to divinity. Demonstrating the power of his salvation that conquers both sin that crucified him and the death that as a result of sin, he was raised to life. He appeared Hundreds of witnesses saw him. He ascended and he will return. And this this is our hope, our sure and blessed hope, his return. So we thank you for his body. We thank you for the real and true Christ, the Savior of all mankind, especially those who believe. So for those of us who believe, we thank you today for this Savior who gave himself for us. And Father, as we take this cup, we're reminded in a poignant way that our sins were not overlooked. They were not simply cast aside. They were atoned for. They were punished. And Jesus was treated like the worst of any of us. And that in His dying, by the shedding of His blood, We are made whole. We are forgiven. By His stripes, we are healed. And we thank You for that today. We thank You that we did not deserve this. We deserve what Jesus received. But by His grace and mercy, He died so that we might have life, life everlasting. We thank You that we can stand before You one day now, not condemned because of our own sin, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. So as we take this cup, we remember the death, the death that saves us. We look forward to, we long for that day when we'll see our Savior face to face. So Father, may we hold fast till then. Thank you for the blood of Christ. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.